Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, 2 Kings chapter 13. It's, uh, it's about time that we step back and get the bigger picture of what's happening in the book of Kings, 2 Kings. We need to do that because in the next few chapters some seismic shifts in Israel's political and social and religious fabric are going to occur. And so we need to establish the, the context on both the heavenly and the, the earthly levels. Now what's being narrated for us is the spiritual and the physical self-inflicted death spiral of Israel and of Judah. And since Israel and Judah have become entirely separate kingdoms with only common family ties to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that keep them from seeing one another as full-on enemies, then we have been getting these little capsules of stories about what was going on in each kingdom. First, the scriptures will select stories about the kings and the prophets and the happenings uh, in the northern kingdom in Israel. Then it'll switch to stories about kings and prophets and happenings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Then back again. And it's an attempt by the author of this book to synchronize the declines of the two kingdoms to show both the contrasts and the similarities between the two kingdoms who are both inhabited by Hebrews, although each kingdom uh, consisted of different Hebrew tribes. Now chapter 12, for instance, dealt with Judah. But now as we get ready to study chapter 13, we rotate back to the north, to Israel. Now, even the terminology used can get confusing as we cycle back and forth between the two kingdoms because during this era, the terms Israel and Israelite had taken, has to be taken in context because they meant different things to different people under different circumstances. The northern kingdom was indeed called Israel, but it also went by the name Ephraim after the most dominant Israel, Israelite tribe up there. The people who lived up there were called either by their tribal name or by their kingdom name, thus Israelites. But for them, the term Israelites could also go beyond their own kingdom name and in some contact contexts, their membership as part of Jacob's extended family, the combined 12 tribes of Israel, was what they meant. Thus at times, Israelite was a national term, at other times it was a familial term. Now the southern kingdom, well it was called Judah. And Judah was both the name of the tribe who dominated the region and it was the official name of the kingdom. And like up in the north, the people in the south identified themselves according to the name of their tribe, Judah primarily, but Simeon also. And then also by the name of their kingdom, Judah. And at times, by the familial name, Israelites, 
since they too were ancestors of Jacob called Israel. From a national perspective, a citizen in the south would call themselves a Judahite. From a familial perspective, they would call themselves an Israelite. Now, this may seem like a bunch of overly complicated nuances that causes your eyelids to droop. (laughs) And shouldn't have a lot of bearing on what a modern Christian needs to know in order to study the Bible. But, if end times prophecies are important to you, they ought to be, then one had better understand these nuances as most of the end times prophecies were written during the time of the kings and then shortly thereafter. And so these end times are all couched in the terminology and in the context of this biblical period. So some of these fanciful interpretations, these dubious doctrines about end times events that we've read and we've heard from novelists and from pastors over these last several decades indicate to me they have little or no knowledge about these nuances. And so they tend to head off down these rabbit trails that certainly make for spellbinding novels and some pretty compelling sermons, but they have little basis in fact and the amount to little more than personal speculation that comes from some very vivid imaginations. Now what 2 Kings shows us is that while Judah and Israel were on the same downward spiritual trajectory, their rates of descent were slightly different. And this was because Jehovah's authorized temple and his priesthood were located in Jerusalem of Judah. And so there was a natural resistance in the southern kingdom to this virus-like infection of idolatry that mostly came from the north. And the northern kingdom went so far as to set up their own alternative and competitive worship centers and priesthoods. Even so, both kingdoms had long periods of abject perversion and wickedness, interrupted by occasional sincere revivals. It seems that just as God was getting ready to exercise his judgment and exile, one or the other kingdom uh, was on the verge of going into the hands of a foreign oppressor, some Hebrew prophet or a king would rise up and lead their people back from the brink, at least temporarily. And what we've also seen is that in many ways the troubling results of wickedness that revolved around idolatry and unfaithfulness and all the accompanying immorality actually had started much earlier with King Solomon when he allowed hundreds of his foreign wives to worship their gods in Jerusalem. Now some of these pagan religious practices involved worshiping in the temples of the false gods, religious sex acts, drinking blood. There is even strong evidence of at least a limited practice of child sacrifice. King Solomon did more than merely look the other way. The Holy Scriptures clearly state 
that he actually participated in some of the festivals and temple activities of these foreign gods, apparently to, a, to please one wife or another and to appease the various special interest groups of Israelites that devoted themselves to one particular god, god cult or another. Nonetheless, King Solomon and his father David were the glue that held Israel together during those mere 80 years that Israel operated as a unified and sovereign nation, a kingdom of God. Even though <clears throat> Judah and those tribes to the north of them, also those tribes who lived on the east side of the Jordan, well, they weren't particularly keen on having a central government over them, no matter where it was located. And part of the reason for that attitude was that no matter who was king, <clears throat> he would by definition have to belong to one, uh, one or another tribes, either a northern or a southern tribe. And the nature of tribal relationships being what they are, there's no way that a king would be even-handed. He would always favor his own tribe and his coalition partners. And the Bible narratives about each king point out that reality and all the dissension that it caused. Thus, upon Solomon's death, there was a power vacuum for leadership over all of Israel. The result was that the nation of Israel dissolved back into its more natural, long-standing tribal coalitions of Judah and Simeon in the south, seven and a half tribes is dominated by Ephraim in the north, and two and a half tribes over in the Transjordan. The loyalties of the tribe of Benjamin that lay on a geographical boundary between the northern and southern tribes tended to bounce back and forth between the northern and the southern kingdoms. In general, the two and a half tribes that resided to the east of the Jordan aligned themselves with the northern tribes, but also weren't necessarily on bad terms with Judah. Well, when Jeroboam became the first king of the newly established northern kingdom after Solomon's death and the subsequent civil war, he also became de facto king over those two and a half tribes in the Transjordan. Now, the tribes there never banded together to establish their own separate Transjordanian kingdom. They therefore never had their own king. Rather, they chose to remain as somewhat autonomous and independent tribal districts and to ally and identify with the northern kingdom and to more or less accept that king as their king, but, but not on a formal basis. But because Judah was now a separate kingdom from Israel, and because Jehovah's temple and priesthood were located in Judah, and thus the Levites and the priests were loyal to Judah's monarchy, Jeroboam decided to create his own alternative state religion up in the north, using his own priests. Thus, as the centerpiece of his religion, he had two golden calves built that he declared were images of Israel's historical God, Jehovah. But in the process of ignoring the Lord's commandment against making graven images of him, 
The northern monarchy also created their own doctrines, their own customs, their own worship practices that by definition were at odds with the Torah-based doctrines and worship practices of the authorized temple in Jerusalem. And since in that era, a people and its society, its king and its gods were all tightly interwoven and inseparable, well, this drove a deeper and deeper wedge between Judah and Israel. However, we are just emerging at this point in 2 Kings chapter 13 from an extended period of time that began with the king of Israel named Ahav, Ahab, who made the shrewd political move of having family intermarriage with the monarchy of Judah. This served to make strong ties between the two kingdoms and it made a way for Ahav to secure a peaceful southern border and to extend his reach and his influence but it also served to export to Judah the wickedness, the immorality, and the idolatry that was characteristic of the north. Now in our day if a space alien arrived in New York City, assuming anybody would even notice, <laughs> America's, and, and, and we wanted to explain to him, it, America's current political and religious and economic and social realities, we couldn't do it by only focusing on New York, not even on the 50 states. We would have to include especially the circumstances of the Middle East, of China, of Europe, even Mexico. Because see, they've all had enormous impact on why the United States is as it is today. The same goes for explaining how by the time of the era of the kings, David and Solomon's Israel had become divided into two kingdoms, and these two kingdoms aren't very far away on a timeline from being exiled from their land in two distinct stages. First, the combined tribes of the north and of the Transjordan would leave in the 720s BC, and later the tribes of the south, Judah and Simeon, would depart in the 590s BC. But these two stages of exile didn't happen suddenly, didn't happen out of the blue, nor were the national powers that conquered the Israelite kingdoms unknown or heretofore inactive. Thus for a few chapters now, in 2 Kings, we've been reading about Hazael, king of Aram, king of Syria, who had been attacking Israel and wreaking havoc upon them. But at the close of chapter 12, he had decided to extend his range and reach beyond Israel, and so he went for the heart of Judah. But what we haven't heard anything about yet is the catalyst that had so much to do with why Syria was even going after the Hebrew tribal territories. 
And that catalyst and this unspoken player at this point was the biggest dog on the block in that area, in that era, Assyria. Now Assyria <clears throat> had kingdom building in mind. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, wanted to expand his kingdom. He wanted to create a greater Assyria and the largest empire the world had known. He, of course, wanted tribute. He wanted wealth, like all other kingdoms did, but he also wanted more territory. This was somewhat unusual for this era. The Assyrians didn't have a lot of choices in the direction that they might be able to expand. Babylon was nearby. Here you have Assyria, you have Babylon. Babylon was nearby, but they couldn't go in that direction because it was too powerful to take on. Thus Assyria looked westward towards Lebanon and Syria, places they considered easier candidates. Hazael, king of Syria at that time, uh, well, he too, naturally, wanted to conquer and extract tribute from the conquered. But because Babylon and Assyria were too big and powerful for him to send an army and take over towns in that direction for the purpose of accumulating wealth, Hazel decided to go towards Israel and to the Mediterranean coastal lands. This is why we read of his several successful campaigns into Israel, into the territories of the Israelite tribes located east of the Jordan River. Then later, we read about Hazael's unlikely defeat at Israel's hand, and then things are quiet for a while. How did that happen? Well, Hazael's defeat was not entirely Israel's doing. Hazael found himself having to devote many of his military resources to protecting his own kingdom from Assyria, who was once again on the march. And that reduced his ability to project power towards Israel. So when we see these, these times of peace for Israel, when Hazel wasn't attacking them, there was a reason for it. He was under attack himself from this growing menace of Assyria. And eventually Assyria would become a powerful empire. It was they who God would finally use to empty the northern kingdom of Israel, as well as the people of the Transjordan Israelite tribal territories. And despite all of these historical facts that are verified, not just by the Bible, but in thousands of Assyrian and Aramaean and Babylonian records that have been unearthed and cataloged and translated, these nations and kings with their grand aspirations were but pawns in the hands of Jehovah. In some way that's impossible for us to barely even imagine, let alone duplicate it, God uses the wills and desires and accomplishments of humans, whether for the good or the bad, to achieve the higher purpose of His will and plan. 
Of course, none of these nations or their kings had any idea of their true roles that they were acting out in this cosmic play of redemption. It's only when looking back in hindsight that we see all of this, that we recognize this impossibly human nature of it all to have happened as it did, and appropriately, we fall down in awe at the feet of our God. So as we continue our study today, although it may seem as though we're just reading dusty historical fact after historical fact, in reality... We are learning about how it was that God orchestrated unwitting nations and their unsuspecting leaders to achieve His divine purposes. And the pattern of how He achieved His purposes in that time is generally the pattern of how He achieves His purposes now and He will in the future. So it is definitely worth our time and attention to find out. So let's read 2 Kings chapter 13. Second Kings chapter 13. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 416. It was in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah that Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began his reign over Israel and Shomron, and he ruled for 17 years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin, and he never ceased committing those sins. Adonai's anger burned against Israel, and he kept handing them over to Hazael, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. But uh, Yehoahaz pleaded to Adonai. Adonai listened to him because he saw the oppression that the king of Aram was inflicting on Israel. So Adonai gave Israel a savior who freed them from the grip of Aram so that the people of Israel could live in their tents as they had before. But despite that, instead of turning from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel sin, they continued to live in this sinful way. And moreover, the Asherah continued to stand in Shomron, Samaria. The king of Aram destroyed Jehoahaz's army, making them like chaff when grain is threshed, except for 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. Other activities of Jehoahaz, all of his accomplishments and his power are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Jehoahaz slept with his ancestors and they buried him in Samaria. And then Joash's son took his place as king. It was in the 37th year of Joash king of Judah that Joash son of Jehoahaz began his rule over Israel in Samaria. And he ruled for 16 years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. On the contrary, he lived in this sinful way. Other activities of Joash and all of his accomplishments and his power in fighting Amatzia, king of Judah, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Joash slept with his ancestors and Jeroboam occupied his throne. Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Well, Elisha was now ill 
with a disease from which he would eventually die. And Joash the king of Israel came down to visit him and he wept over him. And he said, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha said to him, Bring a bow and arrows. And he brought him a bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window. He opened it. Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. He said, Adonai's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory against Aram. You will defeat Aram completely at Afek. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he told the king of Israel, Strike the ground. And he struck three times and then he stopped. And the man of God became angry with him and he said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram completely as it is. You will defeat Aram only three times. Elisha died. They placed him in a burial cave. Well, now the raiding parties of Moab used to make yearly incursions into the land at the start of the year. And once it happened that just as they were burying a man, they spotted a raiding party. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's burial cave. And the moment the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived. And he stood on his feet. Hazel, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the lifetime of Jehoahaz. But Adonai was gracious, he took pity on them, and he looked on them with favor because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was not willing to destroy them. And to this day he has not banished them from his presence. Hazel, king of Aram, died. Ben-Hadad, his son, took his place as king. And then Yoash, the son of Yohaz, captured from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had captured in war from Yehoahaz, his father. Three times Joash defeated him, thus recovering the cities of Israel. <clears throat> well, here we are back to dealing with the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And in an earlier chapter, we found out that Jehu, a military commander who God anointed through one of his prophets to become the king of Israel, had done precisely what God had set as preconditions for him becoming king. And we read of the Lord commending him for it. Now those preconditions were that Jehu destroys to the last man the dynasty of King Ahab of Israel and that he rids Israel of Baal worship. However, after he uh, obediently accomplished these good things, instead of an appropriate response of leading his people back to the proper Torah-based worship of Yehovah, Yehu reinstituted the golden calf cult of Jeroboam. And the consequences of this foolish and this disobedient action were that the Lord opened the door for King Hazael of Aram to once again harass and attack Israel. And interestingly, just as Jehu had been anointed by the Lord as the king of Israel to be used by God for good purposes, so had Hazael been anointed by the Lord to be used as an implement of His divine judgment upon Israel due to their unfaithfulness. 
chapter 13 opens by giving us a marker in time. It says it was in the 23rd year of the reign of the child king of Judah, Joash, that Yehoahaz, Jehu's son, became king over Israel. And Yehoahaz ruled for 17 years and he died. And during his reign, it says, he followed in the footsteps of his father. And he also led Israel in golden calf worship. Now, what we know from archaeological records is that he ruled from 814 to 798 B.C. And all during his reign, he was at war with Syria. Now, before we go on, let me point out something in verse 10. Because we're told that it was in the 37th year of Joash's reign over Judah that another and a different Joash became king over Israel. This new Joash took over from his father Jehoahaz. Now simple addition says that if Jehoahaz ruled for 17 years counting from the time of the 23rd year of King Joash of Judah's reign that means he reigned until Joash's 40th year. 17 and 23 is 40. But verse 10 explicitly says it was in the 37th year of Joash that Jehoahaz's son started to reign. Now, there's no way to determine with certainty whether what we have here is a scribal error or not. Most modern scholars believe the problem's not an error at all, but with, rather it's with the kind of regnal dating system that was employed. Now, if you'll recall a much earlier lesson, we discussed that there are five, count them five, different regnal dating systems used in Holy Scripture. And they varied, not only according to the era, but to the kingdom. Now some think that at this time Judah was using one system, Israel was using another system, but there's a much greater likelihood that all that's being described here is what's called a co-regency, which is something that we have seen a number of times starting back with the book of 1 Kings. That is, a king's son will begin to rule alongside his father, thus giving you kind of a junior and a senior king ruling simultaneously, a co-regency. Depending on the reasons for it, the senior king could be ruling in name only due to his incapacitation or maybe his senility and he would continue to hold the title of king until he finally died. Or the junior king might have been coronated much earlier than he was actually needed and thus he didn't even actually rule. But this premature coronation was arranged so that the current king could control with certainty who succeeded him. King Jehoahaz, we're told, was even worse than his father, Jehu. Now we're not told exactly why the Lord saw him in an even more negative light. And so the Lord led Hazael to become this relentless oppressor of Israel, even though Hazael never seemed to connect Elisha's strange anointing of him as king of Aram with his never-ending desire to attack Israel. <clears throat> Finally, Jehoiakim sensed that Jehovah was behind this constant war footing, so he repented and he pled to the Lord for help. 
the Lord Shema. He listened and he acted upon Yehoiakaz's petition. Not because he had turned from his sins, because he hadn't, but because the Lord felt pity upon his people of the northern kingdom. And then verse 5 says something that commentators, Hebrew and Christian, have debated about for centuries. It says in verse 5, So Adonai gave Israel a savior who freed them from the grip of Aram from Syria. Now scholars have ventured that this savior might have been an unnamed judge, it might have been Yochok has a son Joash, then his grandson Jeroboam II, it may have been some unnamed military leader. Further, the assumption is always that this savior has to be a Hebrew. Now while I understand all the guest work, I really don't think the solution is all that mysterious if we just broaden our search a little bit. See, ancient Assyrian and Aramean records agree, and they make it clear that it was at this same time that we're talking about here that Assyria's king Shalmaneser threw all of his forces at Hazael king of Syria because Hazael had become so distracted and focused upon conquering Israel that he left Syria, his own nation, somewhat vulnerable. Boy, political leaders have done that a lot over the centuries. And Hazael, therefore, had no choice but to finally withdraw his army from Israel to defend his own homeland against Assyria. And there were a number of battles that went on for some years that kept Hazael occupied, but it also left Israel unbothered. But there's another interesting piece of information in the Assyrian archives that adds light to this situation. It seems that before Jehu died, he had worked a deal with Shalmaneser and agreed to a, what's called a tributary alliance with Assyria. That is, a, Israel agreed to pay money to Assyria so they'd be their friend. And this alliance was maintained between Assyria and Israel even after Yehoahaz succeeded his father. So there's little doubt to me that this supposedly unknown savior of verse 5 that caused Hazael to withdraw from Israel and give Israel this much needed respite from war had to be no other than Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. So again, God's supernatural providence shows up and the humans <clears throat> who are bringing about his will are completely unaware of it. Well, that was the good news. <clears throat> the bad news is that King Yehokaz didn't connect his plea to God for help with the help that he graciously received in the form of Shalmaneser attacking Israel's enemy, Syria. So the king went right back to his idolatrous ways and he led his people to resume their golden calf worship. Now it's informative for us to notice that even though Israel used those golden calf images, they thought it was okay because they had assigned them to Yehovah. But as always happens 
once a worshiper begins down that slippery slope of assigning pagan practices and observances to the worship of God, then more practices will be added eventually and pretty soon proper worship becomes unrecognizable. In relatively little time, the reasons for how these new practices ever became part of God worship, well, they're forgotten. And they're not even questioned any longer. So we read in verse 6 that now Israel, the Israelites took another step and they incorporated the religious use of the Asherah tree in Samaria, Israel's capital city. Asherah is a form of the word Ashtoreth, and Ashtoreth is Baal's wife. The Asherah was a symbol of Ashtoreth. No doubt Israel convinced themselves that as long as they used this pagan tree that began as a symbol of Ashtoreth, <clears throat> pardon me, but they did it in the name of the God of Israel, well, the Lord would just find it acceptable and He'd bless it. Wrong. Wrong. The consequence that the Lord laid upon Israel for this idolatry was that Hazael, king of Aram, so decimated Israel's army that Israel was left, without, uh, left with almost no means of self-defense. All that remained of that once proud and powerful army of Israel was 50 mounted cal uh, cavalry, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers. <clears throat> now, we see these examples again and again in the Bible about what happens when God's people decide they can just make up the rules of worship as we go. I'm continually amazed at Christians who think that because of Jesus' advent, we can do what these Israelites did, but God will just justify it for us. The thought is that since Messiah came, we have been given the authorization, apparently, to use to make to assign holy uses to pagan symbols and to pagan practices effectively Christianizing them and God's going to be pleased with all this. So even though we find no other use for these symbols and practices in history except for pagan, we kind of remake them in our image. Church leaders holyfy the pagan. They assign them pious sounding Christian names and presto! We have a new and acceptable Christian symbol or observance. Isn't it great? <laughs> See, what's kind of humorous for me is that I don't even have to suggest what those symbols and certain observances might be. You've already mentally pictured some of them. You have. Some of you might be cringing and thinking that perhaps you at least need to reconsider what you've been doing. Others have already dismissed all such thought as legalism. Or you see me as an unnecessarily wet blanket <laughs> that throws this blanket upon good Christian fun. 
The church has historically adopted several of these pagan practices and observances, made them into new Christian orthodoxy, and then declares that any believer who refuses to follow along is a heretic, worthy only of scorn or maybe even excommunication. And by the way, you might be surprised to know that the pilgrims came to America to escape persecution in Europe for refusing to obey those particular church edicts. That's why they came. Verse 8 brings King Jehoahaz's reign to a close. Of course, he was buried up in Samaria because that was the civil and religious capital of his northern kingdom as opposed to the city of David, the civil and religious capital of Judah. So in verse 10, we're now introduced to our second Joash, who is the son of Jehoahaz. And now he's the new king of Israel. Now to be clear, for a couple of years, there were two King Joash's ruling. One was the king of Israel, the other was the king of Judah. They're separate people. Often to help differentiate between them, we'll find in some Bibles, one of them is named Yehoash, the other is named Yoash. Yehoash means given by Yehovah. Yoash means given by God, Yah. Well, Joash, king of Israel, was a wicked king. And he died after ruling for 16 years. In fact, verse 12 tells us that at one point, he even made war against Amaziah, king of Judah. Joash of Israel died. His son Jeroboam II began to rule. But before, before Joash died, something extraordinary happened. Suddenly, Israel's venerated prophet Elisha is brought back into the picture. He's near death. And although his sincerity can be reasonably doubted, we find this touching scene where Joash, King Joash, goes to Elisha's bedside to visit him, to pay his respects. And then he utters the very words that Elisha had shouted when he witnessed his mentor Elijah being taken up to the heavens in a whirlwind. He, the king says, Father, Father, Israel's chariot and horsemen. See, this was the king bestowing an incalculably great honor upon Elisha that essentially equated him with Israel's greatest prophet, Eliyahu. But it also shows us that those words originally spoken by Elisha had literally become part of Israel's traditional vocabulary. So powerful was their image and their recollection. Well, Elisha was so moved by this humble and submissive demeanor of King Joash that he wanted to give the king gracious assurance about what was coming. And what was coming was more war with Syria. Now, many fine rabbis and sages say that Yoash used the occasion of Elisha's illness to bring a petition for rescue from Syria before him. 
and that the narrative proves that what we are witnessing is primarily a response from Elisha to the king's request. I tend to agree with them, but I can't say for sure. Elisha tells the king to pick up a bow and some arrows. And then Elisha placed his own hands upon the king's hands. Next, the window facing east was to be opened and the arrows shot in that direction. Well, east symbolized the direction of Aram, Syria. And Elisha placed his hands upon the kings to symbolize that the Lord's power and his goodness would flow through this dying prophet into the king of Israel. Well, the idea was to give Joash confidence that the Lord would be with him as he fought this powerful Aramean army and that victory would belong to Israel. The prophecy was that the Syrian army would be decimated and that the major battle would take place uh, at Aphek. Now, Elisha told him to start shooting the arrows. But for some reason, King Yoash stopped after shooting only three. Now this greatly angered Elisha as he wondered why the king didn't empty the quiver. And he says that since Joash didn't do that, then the victory over Syria would be incomplete. But what about this event and Joash shooting only three arrows so greatly upset Elisha? Well, it's obvious that Joash showed only a mechanical interest in what he was instructed to do without it being accompanied by any great zeal. But there's more to this. There's more to this. And you see, this is where those God patterns come into play. Some years earlier, Elisha had helped a widowed woman who was part of this one of these prophet guilds that Elisha oversaw. And he was going to help her to support herself by enabling her to sell anointing oil. So she was to go into her room with this little bit of oil that she had, but then beg and borrow as many empty oil flasks as she could obtain. Then she was to start filling those flasks and keep filling them until the oil stopped flowing. And a very large number of flasks were filled until the miracle ended. But the idea was that it was not to be the woman who decided when she had been blessed enough. It was that God alone would determine how little or how much blessing she was to receive. Joash, as a king used to doing things his way, decided that shooting three arrows was sufficient. The three arrows, however, represented only a fraction of the victories over Syria that the Lord had intended on supplying to Joash. What the king should have done is keep shooting those arrows until they ran out. Each arrow representing the blessing of another victory. Perhaps, as with the oil, the arrows would just have kept coming, even though the number would have far exceeded what that quiver 
could have possibly held. Such is the nature of the Lord's blessing upon us. It is in His sovereign will to bless us a little or a lot. And that blessing won't have much to do with what seems rationally possible. But if we don't keep pulling back the string on our bow and shooting those arrows of deliverance and of victory, we'll never know the limits of what God has intended for us. And what a sad epitaph for Joash that so much divine blessing went unused due only to the greatness of his arrogance and the small measure of his faith. We'll continue chapter 13 next time.